Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, we now know the swearing-in for the next Ford cabinet will be this Friday, June 24th. JMM and I will tell you what we know, which admittedly isn't much. An apology from Toronto police to the capital city's black community. We'll get new Democrat MPP Laura May Lindo's take on this historic development. The Greens are making noise about removing wage caps for nurses and repealing Bill 124. We'll get into the implications for Ontario's public servants. And while we're talking about the Greens, Steve asks some rather uncomfortable questions in his column this week about the future of the Ontario Green Party. I do indeed. It's Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. So let's get to it. Well, John Michael, the government sent out a news release on Monday confirming that the new cabinet swearing-in will take place Friday morning at Queen's Park. Uh, I guess the early betting is that Doug Ford is likely to expand his cabinet to make room for some new MPPs. Uh, After all, he has a bunch of new MPPs on his back benches. So, uh, you know, there are some obvious things that have to take place right off the top. First and foremost, we need a new health minister. Uh, Christine Elliott, I guess, technically is still the health minister until Friday, even though she didn't run for re-election. So that job needs filling. It is, of course, the biggest spending job in cabinet. Um, I come from a school of thought that basically goes like this. Those who know don't say, and those that say probably don't know. So whatever we're hearing at this point is probably not terribly accurate. Uh, It's also the case that until the calls go out Thursday night, which is the tradition, you usually make the phone calls to the prospective ministers on the night before the morning swearing in. So Thursday night, we expect the calls to go out. And until that happens, it's really never a done deal. And I have seen examples over the years where people, you know, they got the call Thursday night and then they blabbed to somebody and it got back to the premier and therefore they got turfed before the next morning uh, could even take place, or something else happened, requiring another shuffle at the last minute. So uh, just a a little word of admonition here to everybody. We should be rather humble this week about what we think we know and what's actually true, especially as we record this on a Monday. I'm I'm sure we'll know more by Thursday. But having said all that here on Monday, (laughs) what are you hearing? Well, a few names have come up as potential successors for Elliott in the health ministry. Uh, Sylvia Jones, uh, the Solicitor General, uh, Steve Clark, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, uh, and Prabhmeet Sarkaria, uh, the President of the Treasury Board, uh, have all been floated as a possibility for uh, promotion. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 any one of those names would start off a game of musical chairs, right? The, the Solicitor General, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, the, the President of the Treasury Board, these are all important ministries in their own right. So who replaces them uh, becomes the next uh, question. You know, Steve Clark, for example, has uh, done four long years of uh, work in uh, municipal affairs. He probably wouldn't object to the promotion at all. But that remains a really important file for this government over the next four years, right? Housing affordability is something that his successor, if he were in fact promoted, would then have to deliver on. Um, You know, on the topic of uh, COVID response, This government isn't going to uh, stop having to deal with things like expanding uh, hospitals and uh, dealing with long-term care homes. Uh, It has been uh, temporarily uh, filled, I guess we could put it that way, uh, by Paul Calandra, who also was doing duty as the government house leader and the minister of legislative affairs, um, where he, he had a bunch of different jobs. So, you know, we will see if, uh, you know, who potentially succeeds Calandra, or maybe uh, Calandra keeps 
uh, long-term care but gives up government house leader. But, you know, the other uh, issue here, I mean, long-term care used to be part of the Ministry of Health. There's some reports that uh, we've seen from our colleagues in the press gallery that uh, the Ministry of Health could be broken up even more uh, in terms of making room for more ministers that we discussed earlier there. So uh, lots of potential uh, wheels and wheels moving in the machinery of government here. Let's take a look at the Ministry of Education, which, of course, over the last two years has basically meant spending a lot less time on pure education and a lot more time dealing with COVID and the effects that COVID have had on the education system. That was the last two years. Now, for the next two years, whoever the Minister of Education is going to be is going to have to look at contract negotiations with the teacher unions. Stephen Lecce has been the Minister of Education for the past couple of years. How much do you think he wants to spend his time tackling those issues? I mean, he might welcome the opportunity to just have the normal job of being the education minister, <laughs> which always involves making these negotiations. Uh, you know, for people who uh, may not have a you know detailed knowledge of how these things go, I mean, the the province has one. Uh, role or one seat at a table in terms of negotiating uh, its own spending priorities, right? And then the school boards, then after the province has has settled its major areas of agreement or or disagreement with the uh, teachers unions, after that's done, the school boards then negotiate their own local, very specific agreements. And so this process, I mean, you you said two years. Yes, it can literally take years for all of this stuff to to, to work its way through the system. uh, and uh, we've, we've talked about this a bit before. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we're seeing a, a few reports now that uh, Lecce is likely to stay in education, uh, at least for the next little while. You know, if he's going to be the education minister after Friday, I think it would be reasonable to assume uh, that he would be the education minister until uh, at least all of the major collective bargaining agreements are done with the teachers. Uh, And then if that goes well, uh, then maybe the premier would find another rewarding position for him. Okay, let's move on to another story here. And I guess the reality is that the bills and the bill numbers come at us all so quickly, we don't really keep track of what all the numbers stand for. But to the extent that anybody knows any bill number, I'm betting it's Bill 124. And John Michael will remind us in a second about why that is. The Greens would like to recall the Ontario legislature and repeal Bill 124. All the so-called progressive opposition parties are against it. They are framing this recalling of the legislature to repeal the bill as a necessity to retain nurses, which of course is something everybody wants to do, including the government of the day. So, JMM, first off, remind everybody what Bill 124 is all about, and then secondly, whether you think there's any appetite on the government benches to have a bit of a rethink on it. Bill 124 was passed uh, before COVID-19 in the last legislature by the Progressive Conservative government. Uh, This is a law that effectively caps the allowable salary increases for uh, public servant uh, employees or public sector employees, I should say. Uh, And it applies both to the Ontario Public Service directly and also what we call the broader public sector. So government agencies, schools, nurses, hospitals. Us. Uh, Indeed, I was about to say, as as we always say when we talk about Bill 124, it does uh, also apply to us here at TVO, so a full disclosure there. The 
Premier did make some noises in his uh, speech, or I should say in his uh, press conference after the election night victory, that did strike uh, not just me, but uh, several observers uh, as, you know, potentially the government signaling that it was willing to um, uh, soften Bill 124 at least a little bit. Uh, the the uh, inflationary environment that we are in right now, uh, you know, six, seven, eight percent inflation is eating away a lot of people's wages. And uh, that is true both in the private and public sector. Uh, And, uh, you know, the premier talked about, uh, you know, wanting to be fair to workers. Um, And, you know, when the Greens say that, uh, you know, this is something we need to do in order to retain uh, skilled nurses and other healthcare workers, obviously, I think there's an argument there uh, that the government is going to take seriously, at least in the, the healthcare space where we are still rebuilding and recovering uh, from COVID-19. They do have to recall the legislature uh, at some point uh, in the near future, because as uh, we'll remind our listeners yet again, uh, Ontario still doesn't have a budget passed. Uh, The the budget was introduced, but the legislature was dissolved before it could be uh, voted on and passed. So they do have to bring the legislature back. It's possible if they want to make any sort of legislative changes to uh, what was Bill 124, and, and I forget what the actual form, formal title of the law is right now, um, they could do that as part of the, the budget that they bring back or as a piece of separate legislation. But they might not actually need to. The The law does give the uh, the president of the Treasury Board uh, currently, uh, Prabhmeet Sarkaria, but uh, that title might change on Friday. Uh, it does give the president of the Treasury Board uh, some leeway to make exceptions in the provincial interest. Uh, so they they could, within certain limits, they, they are able to allow a higher than a 1% uh, increase in compensation increases uh, without necessarily having to rewrite the law itself. Well, they've been doing it, right? They've been giving lump sum payments to some sectors, to some sector workers. Uh, that doesn't deal with the official bottom line, which is the 1% cap, but it does sort of work around the bill a little way, which incidentally its real name is Protecting a Sustainable Public Sector. Okay, that's uh, it's a bit Orwellian, but anyway, that's what it's <laughs> called. And, uh, and it's all about math, and I'm going to introduce another idea here that's all about math. The government has 83 seats. The opposition, NDP, Liberals and Greens, have 40. And where I come from, 83 always beats 40. <laughs> so we know if this comes down to a vote, the government has a majority and they are going to uh, carry the day. Um, But it's not completely, I think I I heard you hinting there, it's not completely uh, outside the realm of possibility that the government could tinker a bit with this. Is that right? Yeah, and and I think... One argument, at least from the government's perspective, for not repealing Bill 124 wholesale is that they do have some flexibility, um, but it does let them... uh, at least in theory, pick and choose a little bit. Uh, they could say that, for example, uh, because healthcare workers are so vital to the COVID-19 recovery, uh, they're going to get a special dispensation and, and a higher uh, allowable compensation increase, uh, but they might not extend that same benefit to uh, education workers. Uh, generally, the government hasn't uh, allowed education spending to grow as quickly as some of the other areas that are its uh, higher spending priorities. Um, so th- that's the kind of 
thing that they might do, uh, and again, I, th- I think they can probably do that without repealing Bill 124 uh, wholesale. Um, and and you know, the government does want to spend more on healthcare, at least on the the, the stuff that's you know building hospitals, uh, you know, getting more long term care homes built, improving the conditions for existing long term care homes, uh, those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, in theory, I think you could m- see them uh, go in that direction. Uh, though, I, you know, I. I I'm skeptical so far at the idea of of simply repealing Bill 124 wholesale. Let's shift our lens to the NDP because uh, there has been some, well, what do we call it, post-election infighting uh, among Ontario's New Democrats. Yes, the party is still the official opposition, but it did lose nine seats from its 2018 total. And now a group within the party is making its intentions, JMM, very much known. (laughs) That's right. Uh, an online group called New Demo Chat is urging uh, two high-ranking New Democrat officials uh, to be fired. Uh, Michael Balagas, the chief of staff to Andrew Horvath, and the party's executive director, Lucy Watson, uh, are both being targeted. Uh, this group uh, doesn't like the uh, uh, oversight that Balagas and Watson imposed on the party, the, the centralization of uh, uh, control in the leader's office that we've discussed in previous episodes. Now, Balagas has already announced that he's going to be stepping down in September. So in one sense, it's not clear to me what his being fired would change. Uh, We don't have a a clear statement, I believe, uh, from uh, Lucy Watson on, on what her intentions are going forward. But I guess to put this in the context, of course, Andrew Horvath has announced that she is leaving, and it would be this would be the kind of decision that the interim leader of the party would make uh, once that decision is finalized, which is supposed to happen later this month. And it's going to be Peter Tabins, presumably, right? I and mean, that's not a slam dunk, but presumably. Yes, I, Tabins was the choice of the caucus. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any groundswell of. Uh, Uh, opposition to him or support for another candidate as interim leader. Uh, So it seems very likely that Tabins will be uh, the interim leader. All right, let's look at the Steel City for a moment here, because the mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, uh, has just announced, uh, just before we started taping this, that he will not be running for re-election as the mayor of Hamilton, which, uh, as you might suspect, uh, will lead to a ton of speculation about where the MPP for Hamilton Center will go next. Now, remind me, the MPP for Hamilton Center, JMM, um, what's her name again? I do, I, 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 I know her pretty well. She, what's her y- name? You've heard her before. It's a, a, a woman named Andrew Horvath. Ah, there we go. I knew I knew the name. Uh, yes. Uh, in a press release uh, released earlier today, uh, Horvath uh, did say that she's not announcing a mayoral run uh, in Hamilton uh, today. Uh, for context, again, uh Horvath's name has been floated for uh, quite some time now, and there is a deadline in August uh, at which point she has to make it official or not, whether she's going to run for mayor. Um, the the release that the NDP put out today uh, did end with the sentence, but I can tell you my heart is always in Hamilton. So, you know, hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a hint. That's a declaration. I'm sorry. That's a declaration. Now, from time to time, we talk on this podcast about other stuff that we have written for the TVO website. And, JMM, this is one of those times. You've written a column that uh, some people in the Green Party may not like too much uh, because you have put some uncomfortable facts on the record. Uh, Do you want to summarize them for our listeners? I will do so. Uh, Here we go. The Greens have contested 11 elections since 1985 in Ontario. And if you add up all the seats that have been contestable... That's 1,290 seats. They've won two 
of those 1,290 seats. It's Mike Schreiner both times, right? Mike Schreiner won four years ago. He won earlier this month. Those two, and that's it. In this past election in 2022, the Greens came first in one seat. They came second in one seat, Perry Sound, Muskoka. They came third in three seats. They came fourth in 90 seats. I'm not done. It gets worse. They came fifth in 26 ridings. That means they came behind either the New Blue Party or the Ontario Party. And they're just contesting elections for the first time, not the 11th time, the first time. And yet the Greens came fifth in 26 ridings. And they came sixth in three ridings. Okay, what's my point here? Well, as much as Mike Schreiner is a very respected guy, punches above his weight, you've heard all these expressions before, in the other 123 ridings in Ontario not named Guelph, the Greens are pretty much a non-factor. And in fact, they overwhelmingly take votes away from the NDP and the Liberals, who we assume would get most of their vote, making it easier for Tories to win. Now, I'm not advocating anything here. I am merely saying that if the progressive parties are trying to unify their vote more, they might spend less time talking about an NDP-Liberal merger, which almost certainly isn't on, and instead look at some arrangement with the Greens, who apparently are still not a threat after 37 years to win seats anywhere other than Guelph. Okay, that's the piece. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so first of all, just to reiterate what you're saying here, I mean, it's it's not a matter of you know, you or I advocating for the Green Party to, you know, uh, self-disincorporate or whatever. Um, but if we're going to have discussions about what is the future of the Liberal Party and what is the future of the New Democratic Party, which those discussions are absolutely happening, including uh, on this podcast, but at least as importantly elsewhere, uh, then, yeah, it's absolutely fair to ask what is the future of the Green Party? And, you know, uh, Mike Schreider is a, a, a vital and apparently healthy man. I don't know his medical history, but like nobody lasts forever in these jobs. And, you know, we see what has happened federally to the Green Party uh, with Elizabeth May's departure from uh, that party's leadership. It's just been a bit of a... Uh, I know what you're trying to say, but you're not going to say it because we're a G-rated podcast. Yeah, we're going to keep that family friendly, but it has not been uh, happy times for the Green Party. There you uh, go. And so, you know, and the same thing could happen to the Greens if and when uh, Mike Schreiner does eventually uh, leave politics. Um, and then you have a discussion of, like, does the party stick around as essentially a, a protest vote or uh, do you try to build it into something else? Now, I mean, Mike Schreiner's position is he very much wants to build the party into contention to be that that's something else to be, a, a, you know, a, a, at least a plausible opposition party, if not to form government. Um but we know also, from, well, insofar as we know anything from polling, we know that uh, for a lot of green voters, you know, their second choice is one of the larger parties, right? The, the liberal or uh, new democratic parties. Um, and, and not all of them. Some of them are just diehard green party uh, uh, voters. And if the green party ceased to exist, they would just drop out of, of elections. And I think that would be a shame. But uh, for a lot of these people, you know, there is a, a plausible alternative for them. And so, I, you know, I don't necessarily know where you go from there, uh, but it's a discussion worth having. Anyway, I would just urge people to go to the Agenda website and uh, click on My Ugly Face, and you can see the whole column, uh, which I make the case for. Uh, just the Greens need to think about where they're at right now. That's all. It's just to put some facts on the record and the Greens can think about it.
as an organization, we have not done enough to ensure that every person in our city receives fair and unbiased policing. And for this, as Chief of Police, and on behalf of the service, I am sorry and I apologize unreservedly. That was Toronto Police Chief James Raymer apologizing for distressing details coming out of a Toronto Police Service report published last Wednesday. Just some of the stats we can share with you. Black people in Ontario are 2.3 times more likely than white people to have firearms pointed at them when police thought they were unarmed. Indigenous people are overrepresented in contacts with the police as well when it comes to enforcement actions. East and Southeast Asian and as well as Hispanic people are underrepresented in police contact, but when they are contacted by police, they are overrepresented uh, in use of force incidents. South Asian people are twice as likely to have a gun pointed at them uh, than white people. Let's get into this some more. MPP Laura May Lindo represents Kitchener Centre. It's Laura May, it's good to see you again. How are you managing these days? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Great to have you back. Are you satisfied? Let's start there with the Chief's apology. Um, it's an interesting starting point. Um, in this particular case, uh, the Black community members were not people that were asking for an apology. So it's kind of a, an awkward situation to be in where you have the Toronto Chief of Police um, begin with an apology, which is the, the typical way that the system tries to address um, proof of racism existing. Um, and then uh, people are kind of upset that Black community members aren't finding that to be sufficient. I think what we did see with the report was that uh, a lot of the complaints and concerns that have been raised by Black community members time and time again uh, were again uh, justified and verified with the data. And so nobody really wanted a, an apology. They wanted action. They wanted an action plan. Um, and I think if we can provide that action plan, if we can prove that investments are going into Black Black communities, um, if we can prove that we're thinking a lot about what we do with police budgets versus the investments that we have in communities where there are large numbers of racialized uh, people, then an apology would be proven with action as opposed to just the words. You mentioned people in the black community uh, uh, not looking for the apology. One of the people at the announcement uh, was Beverly Bain from the community organization No Pride in Policing. And I'm here to address <laughs> what I see as really egregious in terms of this particular um, uh, a public relations stunt that has been delivered by our chief here, the chief, Chief Rayma. This has nothing to do with the black community. You're apologizing to your rank and file for uh, something, for uh, a series of in, um, information that we have been saying to you for decades. What are you hearing uh, in terms of public sentiment uh, regarding Raymer's apology? What are you hearing from your constituents? Um, what I'm hearing is that Professor Bain is absolutely brilliant and uh, right on. Um, to be honest, the easiest way to express what I'm hearing is that uh, she said and spoke, uh, she said things that all of us were thinking. Um, she didn't waste time with uh, back and forth about an apology. Is it good enough? Is it not good enough? But instead said, where's the action? And I think uh, report after report after report is telling us 
that there needs to be a shift in what we invest in. Um, and so this report is no different. Um, and so what I am hearing from folks across Kitchener Centre, and I would argue across Waterloo Region, where we also have uh, a reallocate initiative uh, that's been happening here, what I'm hearing is that uh, there's no more time for talk. It's time for an actual plan. And from my space as a provincial representative, that's where as soon as Queen's Park resumes, um, I have the honour and privilege of actually being at Queen's Park asking for real investment in our communities so that we can do something differently this time with this particular report. Let me share a couple of other things that Chief Raymer had to say. He said the Toronto Police Service will not tolerate, quote, overt racism. He mentioned that several times. He also said several times that this was about a systemic racism and not about merely individual acts of racism. So my question is, does that go some distance in terms of your satisfaction that the police are acknowledging something that they have been, let's say, less inclined to acknowledge over the years? Um, it's, it's important that we talk about systemic racism, but it's even more important that we understand what systemic racism is and how it operates. And so in the case of policing, um, the reason that you actually create spaces where overt racism can happen with individual officers is because the system perpetuates a, a climate where you're not held accountable. And so it's actually not two separate things. They're intertwined and deeply intertwined. And I think that that's part of why the community um, is sort of questioning the deeper understanding of what's happening in the systems and not just policing, but the criminal justice system more broadly and where the province invests their money, because that's what systemic racism is. It's, it's deciding that we're going to um, be okay with ballooning uh, police budgets and not have enough money to go towards mental health supports for, for uh, racialized communities, um, not have enough money to address racism in the school system, not have enough money to ensure that racialized people aren't overrepresented um, in low-income housing, for instance. And so it's not something that's uh, so easily... Uh, recognized in what he said. Um, I think that there's a lot of questions about how leadership in all areas, not just in policing, is going to be able to address systemic racism if they don't quite understand what it is. Um, and if room isn't made to have experts that do understand what it is, provide strategies for us to do things differently and, and center the needs of racialized communities. I mean, one of the strategies that I think uh, uh, for addressing this that, that people uh, certainly that I've heard in the last week is, is actual um, consequences for uh, misconduct. Uh, do you think uh, differentiating between uh, individual versus systemic racism, uh, is that a way of affecting which actions we discuss going forward, such as reprimands for officers? So reprimands for I don't think it has to be either or. That's, I think, where I need to start. So it doesn't have to be either or. Reprimands for, for individual officers who are perpetuating racism has to happen. It, those consequences should be uh, happening in any system. But the fact that you can remove a particular officer uh, who is who we've determined has perpetuated racism and racism still continues in the systems suggests that the removal of an officer is insufficient. It suggests that there's something else that's happening within the system that allows people to treat um, racialized folks, black folks, indigenous folks uh, differently 
when they come across them in community. And so I think that's the bigger, the bigger piece. I would also argue that it's important for us to not just talk about policing as though it's separate and apart from other systems. So police officers are trained, which means the post-secondary system is also part of uh, something that we have to address if we're going to address uh, racism and systemic racism at that. So when I think about uh, in the last session, me tabling Bill 67, uh, the Racial Equity and Education Systems Act, that bill was going to provide tools in post-secondary, not just in kindergarten and grade 12, so that anybody that was going through our school system would have a, a sense of what perpetuating racism looks like. If we don't do those kinds of bigger systems changes, then that individual um, accountability on its own isn't going to actually change the outcomes on the ground. And we'll just have more reports that demonstrate that still nothing has changed. Let me take everybody back five years. This is when Kathleen Wynne was still the Premier of Ontario, and it was her government that passed something called the Anti-Racism Act. It mandated public sector organizations to collect race-based data in order to, quote, eliminate systemic racism and advance racial equality. That's 2017. Racial equity, I should say. You came along in 2018, got elected for the first time. You've now seen it as a legislator for four years. Uh, how would you rate the progress that this law has made towards eliminating systemic racism and advancing racial equity? Um, so actually, it's interesting that you asked me that. In Bill 67, there were some amendments that um, my team had for the Anti-Racism Act, including actually defining what racism is so that everybody is on the same page when it comes to what it is that they're looking for when we say uh, we're trying to address systemic racism. Um, ha missing that, having something so simple missing from legislation is problematic because it provides different uh, sectors with an opportunity to excuse behaviors that are actually perpetuate racism. And so part of what Bill 67 was also trying to do was make an amendment to strengthen the act. Um, so as my mummy says, I tell you that to tell you this. Um, I think what I have seen over the course of the time that I've been elected is that the Anti-Racism Act looked very pretty, but didn't have the tools that are needed to actually do the work. So even data collection, um, if you collect data, but you're not required to make a, a plan to address it so that when you collect the data the next year or the, the year after, you're not actually checking your progress, then you're not really doing anything other than uh, telling us stories about things that we already know. And so I do think that what we need to have happen, again, is to strengthen legislation um, and ensure that we have legislators that are uh, elected who are, are courageous enough to make sure that the legislation is actually um, adhered to so that we can do the work. Right now, in fact, with the Anti-Racism Act, um, healthcare data in the health system, which is a major sector that uh, we've heard uh, oodles of stories about uh, racism within healthcare, is exempt from data collection. And the rationale is that the privacy laws make it too hard to collect the data. Well, we create privacy laws and we create the other laws. And I think if we're going to try and do the work and we're actually trying to make the change, then we've got to find a way to collect the data and attach to it a real strategy and an action plan for change. Your mother is a wise person, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> she is very wise. Let me do a fast follow-up. Uh, ways that your bill would strengthen the Anti-Racism Act. You want to give us a couple of examples? Uh, for sure. So it's not punitive, it's educational. Um, I think that's the most important piece. So that particular 
particular bill would ensure that everybody has access to the tools and the training that they need to be able to do the work. Um, it would be uh, creating uh, action plans that are led by experts as opposed to um, politicians, um, making sure that somebody who understands how to address uh, racism in education is at the helm, um, making sure that we're, we're making the changes and achieving the goals that we set. It would be about achieving goals um, and also naming uh, racism, being clear that if there's any kind of policy or practice that leaves racialized communities behind, then that just has to change. And that doesn't have to be felt as punitive. That, that's just a reality. If, if something's not working, you fix it. And so if it's not working and we're keeping, we're keeping an eye on the data, um, we're attaching it to an action plan and we have to make the changes, we make the changes and we start to move more boldly into a place where racial equity is uh, the norm uh, across the province. So Toronto is, I guess, the first city to make this kind of uh, data public, uh, but all police forces in Ontario are required to collect this data. What are you looking from municipal police forces uh, outside of Toronto across the province as this uh, process moves forward? Um, so I'm going to say something rather bold. Uh, so hold on to your hats, folks. I would love, to, I would love to have um, police services across the province um, ask the the provincial government to invest in the systems that would make them not have to appear at mental health calls. Um, not for them to have the money themselves and then they have to partner with a mental health service to be able to do that work, but for them to actually say, no, we don't need that funding. This system needs that funding. I would love to see something like that because if I saw that, then I would be able to rest assured that they understand how systemic discrimination operates, that by providing the tools to the right experts, we're actually able to hold community with care and compassion and love. And so if that kind of thing happened, I would say they're, they're hearing the data and they're trying to do something different. That would be that would be stellar. And I would argue that there would be many, many racialized community members across the province who would say, OK, I think we're, we're getting somewhere now. I mean, I have heard that rhetoric from even some members of, of the police forces who are saying, like, you know, we, we didn't want the job of doing responses to mental health calls, but it has fallen to us. Yeah. I'm going back to a Toronto example here because we're, we're talking about it, but th there are some uh, uh, moves afoot to try and create alternatives to uh, police responses in these cases. A uh, bit of uneven progress, I think it's fair to say, so far. I mean, do you think that the the province is, um, uh, for lack of a better word, equipped to sort of get serious about that? Oh, and I thought you were going to say, in the words of Beyonce, ready for that jelly. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, really, I should have. That would have been a better podcast. It would have been so good. But it's okay. I'll take it from here. Um, so uh, what I do think is that I know in Waterloo Region, for instance, we've also had those discussions. Um, it's true that police don't want to be the first responders um, at these mental health calls um, and these health check calls. Um, but it's also true that we don't have the alternative system in place for them to not be. So I think where what I hear from community, to be pretty specific about it, is if the police have said this isn't 
um, within their purview, that's not what they're trained to do. This isn't where they are experts. Then why are we actually then giving them extra dollars to be to find ways to create that alternative system? And I think that that's the distinction between um, the way that the province has been trying to, to operationalize any of this movement and why it's so disjointed, when at the end of the day, at the same time that the, uh, the police services across the province are saying, this isn't what we want to be doing, but we're, we're the only people, so we're going to do it. We have mental health services and addiction services um, experts that are saying, we need funding. We need stable funding. We need... Uh, consistent funding, we need an increase in funding. And so if we actually wanted to solve the problem, we would increase that funding, ensure that they had what they needed, and then the police wouldn't have to be at the helm. They could be a partner in doing something else, because I do know, for instance, in First, First Nations communities and some other communities, uh, northern communities, uh, the police services have different functions because depending on your region, you're, you're doing different things. And so I do think that there's a way for us to start to make the shift, but we have to be bold enough and courageous enough to rethink the way that we're, we're looking at our funding models as a province and start to fund the services that are going to address the actual issues at hand. I think I will also quote that noted on Poly Scholar by saying, I think we should put a ring on this conversation right now. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and thank Laura May Lindo, the MPP for Kitchener Center, uh, for being with us here on the Unpoly podcast. And as I often do, which probably bothers you, but I don't care, I'm going to ask you to send our best regards to your Uncle Alvin, and that would be <laughs> Alvin Curling, the first ever Black Cabinet Minister in Ontario history. I remember his swearing in very well on uh, June 26, 1985, on the South Lawn at Queen's Park. That was an historic day for everyone. And um, please pass along our best wishes to him. Absolutely. Great to have you on. Thank you. Now, we usually conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, but once again, nobody's been making any announcements over the past week, so we're going to hold off until next week when uh, I suspect we'll have a cornucopia of quotes to choose from because, of course, we're going to have a new cabinet next week. So let me just remind everybody to uh, check out and subscribe to our weekly On Poly newsletter, uh, which, like the podcast, drops every Tuesday. Uh, this week, the theme is the Ford government back in court. Uh, you will hear us, uh, or rather, you will read us uh, nerd out about stuff that uh, didn't make it into the pod, uh, including a pay equity ruling for Ontario midwives and Ford's use of the notwithstanding clause going back to court. And you can subscribe to the On Poly newsletter at tvo.org forward slash newsletters. And that is it for the On Poly podcast this week. If you like what you heard, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you didn't like what you heard, you can tell us that too. We love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Uh, you can also tweet at us. I'm at jam underscore McGrath. And I'm at S. Paikin. That's S-P-A-I-K-I-N. This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Jonathan Hallowell, and Albert Wisco. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. I guess this means she got a promotion, eh, Katie? I, I believe she did, yes. Managing editor. Well, Moving up a in fancy the world. new title. There you go. That's it for today. Okay, JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. One of these days you're going to say stay negative, test positive, and I'm going to be here for that. <laughs>